Welcome to the Don't Trip on the Usual Travel Podcast from Beyond Experiences. My name is Kishan and I'm going to be speaking with Anand today. The last time I spoke with him, we discussed about Tibet in particular. And since he was running short of time, we ended up the episode round about the Everest Base Camp. And uh, today we will be taking this topic further and discussing his experiences down at the foothills of Mount Everest. Welcome back, Anand. Hi, Kishan. Sorry, uh, the, in the last conversation I had to rush off. Um, so I was chronicling my uh, journey through Tibet and uh, we, we started, I told you about how I started from Kathmandu, Lhasa and then through Gansa uh, and Shigatse and all of that. And then I reached, I was about to reach Everest Base Camp when we stopped the last episode. I'd stopped the last time when I was at, I think, the Gaula Pass. And the Gaula Pass is at 5,200 odd meters. And it is inside the Mount Everest National Nature Reserve. From there, the new zigzag road starts that mm-hmm. goes all the way up to the Everest Base Camp. But as you get closer to the Everest at one particular point, suddenly there was the view of this peak that was looming in the distance. That was the Mount Everest, as the guide said. We all were very excited and jumped down and took pictures of it, etc. And then we reached uh, the Rombuk Monastery, the famous Rombuk Monastery. Most of those pictures of the Everest from with the monastery spire in the foreground that you would have seen are the Rombuk Monastery. Mm-hmm. I was quite taken aback because it seemed very modern. Mm-hmm. They had a guest house and stuff. So uh, what I had read about the Rombuk Monastery was very different. So I was slightly surprised, but I kind of held on to my questions and my doubts. So is it the real monastery? No, it's not. I'll tell you. The okay. older one is uh, further up. Okay. So we saw that most people think that that is the Rombuk Monastery. It's not. Okay. So then we uh, brief uh, pit stop at Rombuk Monastery and then we were headed up directly into the base camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you go from the, this base camp is on the north face of the Everest. It's not the south face. The south face is accessible only after climbing, etc. Oh, okay. uh, and on foot. Uh, the north face, uh, this base camp uh, the, the, that's located in Tibet is accessible by road. Mm-hmm. So the vehicle takes you up all the way up to the base camp. Okay. And from there, that's the first level. From there, you can walk up uh, to go to the next level and from there it's further up to the next level and that level is the one from which the climbers of Everest kind of stay acclimatized and then start climbing. Okay. So we went in here and then I walked up to the second level. Uh, some of you of us walked up to the second level. It's a bit of a trek, not too difficult really. Mm-hmm. It's just that the oxygen causes, uh, causes a bit of damage to you and to your stamina. Okay. The uh, stay in um, the Everest base camp is is nothing to write home about. It's it's fairly basic. Uh, what you actually require there is protection from the cold. That's about it. And the wind, you know, the Himalayas in a sense protect us from the icy winds that blow from the north in, in India. But uh, here you're right on top of that, right? So the icy winds are coming and hitting at you. It's almost mm-hmm. buffeting you, so to say. Really strong winds and icy cold. And the accommodation is standard for all, right? Yeah, it's standard for all. They're just tents, and they're all of them are yak head tents. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the they're, they're more or less uh, what twelve odd people who stay in a tent, and you sleep on the circumference of the tent. And what is this tent made up of? Because the last time, you know, this this sounds very familiar to me. Uh, sounds like the Lau tent that I stayed in uh, down in Norway, where it's it's circular and. In shape, I have about 10 or 12 beds around. You have some form of a furnace uh, which is burning uh, in between to keep one warm. 
Yeah, so this is very similar. Uh, in the sense, this the tents are made out of yak hide. Okay. So it's really really prevents the cold from getting in the wind from getting in. Mm -hmm. uh, more or less airtight. It's got a flap that opens on a very heavy flap, so you have to really push with all your might to kind of open the flap to get out, and that that way the wind also stays out. Mm -hmm. In the center of this entire uh, structure is a furnace which is which is fired with uh, yak duck. Oh. Okay, so it it's not very smelly, but it's got a strange smell to it. Mm -hmm. um, but you kind of don't want it to get off because the cold starts after that. Mm -hmm. uh, that's how you heat up your soup, your noodles, your water, your tea, whatever you want to. Plus, it gives you heat. Okay, and uh, uh, loos are all outside. Uh, there are about three hundred people who are there at any point in time uh, if all the tents are occupied. And uh, there, there is a complex of three loos for men and three for women. And the loos are basically just wooden structures, tilted wooden structures, so to say, with a hole in the center of the floor. So you just cut, squat over it. And uh, um, so in that sense, it was not very, very clean. Actually, it was fairly unclean. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the night was magical, really, out there. Okay. So for instance, all of us, and I think the bunch of us in that tent were all very, very different people. There are. Uh, Norwegians, there were Dutch, there were uh, Danes, there was somebody from Canada, someone from the UK, all kinds of people, uh, and a couple of Southeast Asians also. So, how many traveled from India? Was it just you? Uh, yes, it was just me and a couple of others from India. Okay. So there are three of us there from India, okay. um, and we were there, and and we just kept sitting around that fire. Sleep was not coming because there's not that much of oxygen. We we're all too excited at the at, at the fact that you're just below the Mount Everest, yeah. mm. and uh, every you know half an hour, forty five minutes, an hour, we'd all step out or just go out and see the Everest. So the sight of the Everest is quite magical. You know, on a full moon night, there is this huge, massive. Try to think about this huge, massive structure of rock that is looming in front of you, and just behind it, there is this uh, uh, moon, this huge, big ball of a moon, which is like throwing out this white light out there, and the rest of it is all white and snow, nothing else. Mm. You know, it's quite a magical uh, moment, and we kept going out and seeing it because you knew that uh, you know. This it's not too often that you get such a sight. Um, so we didn't sleep through the night. I mean, I think we just kept chatting about our respective countries, experiences, culture, sharing stories, swapping experiences, and uh, nobody was drinking anything. And you you normally stay away from alcohol for some time before this because uh, you know it, it also smoking. Those who smoked were not smoking and all that. Mm -hmm. um, those are some precautions that you take, and you keep yourself hydrated all the time by keeping on drinking water. Okay. All of us also had uh, personal oxygen bottles so that in case something happened, you could just uh, uh, take the oxygen. Not too many people needed it. I think that two or three people needed it. Uh, but we sat there through the night, the most magical night, I think, uh, of my life. Actually, not the most, one of the most magical nights. Uh, the Northern Lights were also a similar uh, magic. But uh, saw this and then uh, after that, uh, the next day in the morning, I woke up really early. As in, I didn't wake up. I didn't sleep at all. I just went really early to the loo and finished off my, uh, you know, morning freshening up work because I knew that after that it's going to get filthier. So finished that, came back, and uh, most of the others in my tent didn't go. I mean, they tried going there and realized it's not. But that's what it was. 
so 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 what do you do in terms of uh, you know the, the basics like the brushing the teeth and all that so yes so there is a loo in which you can go and finish out the most emergency kind of things but uh, brushing the teeth etc i didn't see too many people doing out there most people don't in fact the people who man the tents and stay out there just use tea leaves Mm-hmm. like we use neem uh, sticks in india in the rural areas mm-hmm. you will find people using neem sticks to clean their teeth they just use tea leaves and then they kind of gargle with tea water and stuff like that mm-hmm. that's what they do the shower is unheard of nobody takes a shower there and i don't think there's any place to take a shower there okay. um but that's about it it's fairly basic uh, staying there for more than two night for, for more than a night could be done i could stay there for two nights but i just wish the rules were cleaner but what does one actually do uh, i mean uh, staying uh, more than one night i mean apart from you taking in the views of mount everest there is nothing much uh, there right ah let me tell you so uh, what i did was i went on a trek from there you go a little bit further up 2 uh, 3 uh, kilometers i think though it seemed like much more than that in that kind of uh, altitude but went a bit further up and there i saw the the ruins of a monastery and i met a person out there monk out the very old man i think he was a monk of that place when he come from elsewhere so sitting there and he gave me some idea about what it was we both could converse in each other's language but um, in some fashion with hand gestures etc we were talking um so i think that was the old monastery that was there it's probably the old rongbuk monastery mm-hmm. though i can't be sure but uh, this is a place where i got some very interesting thoughts from him about how the tibetans also used to do sky burial i don't know if you read my blog mm. on sky burials by the parsis in the tower right. of silence right so on the beyond the website mm-hmm. um if you if you've not then go take a look at it um but sky burial was about the parsi belief that they they follow zoroastrianism right and they believe that the final body that they are so burning or burying etc give it away as food to some other living creature it's a final act of charity Right. The Buddha also believed the same, and some Tibetan Buddhists believe the same. They all believe in the power of charity. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a story about one of the Bodhisattvas, uh, Buddha, uh, in one of his uh, avatars, so to say, had uh, was a prince, and he was out in a forest, and he saw one uh, tigress, mm-hmm. desperate with hunger, about to kill and eat her own cub. Mm-hmm. So huge pity came up uh, in him, and he offered his body to the tigress to feed herself and avoid that kind of grief. Okay. Now, this is what these guys take and uh, believe it to be the final act of charity to give give one's own body as food to some other uh, living creature, the mm-hmm. final punya that you mm-hmm. get, so mm-hmm. to say. So, in fact, it's there in Indian mythology also, where most people, after you finish your, um, you know, your grastashram uh, and your vanaprastashram and your sannyasashram and all that, you start walking towards the northeast. We believe it is walking towards Mount Kailash, and on the way, you you know. leave things one by one uh, you stop eating food and you stop drinking water then mm. you stop taking in air and all and you drop down dead the mahabharata ends with that the pandavas going out on such a thing tibetans also follow a similar thing um towards the end they walk towards uh, chomoloma mm. which is uh, as i told you the deity they call mm. everest that and they they revere it they walk towards that and it is considered to be a great honor to die within sight of uh, chomoloma mm-hmm. So they used to come here with their dead. They used to come to the Rongbuk Monastery, and there the monks would chop the body up. The, the Parsis would leave their dead on a terrace of the Tower of Silence, and the vultures would feed on it. Here they would make it even easier. They would chop the body up into pieces. They'd powder the bones also, so that it's easier for the birds to consume. And they'd leave it out there, and the entire family would wait, and the uh, the body would be consumed by the birds. 
but that's the final act of uh, charity for any person on earth is what they say but walked around it was quite a moment quite a, uh, a time that i had there watched the sunset from that monastery from that dilapidated monastery mm-hmm. the sun setting over the everest and then walk back so that is one thing you can do there are a lot of people who walk around that area there's enough to do it if i had had another day i would have probably had fun and been completely occupied doing that so did that came back and then uh, started the long journey back so whenever you are uh, going around walking uh, you know taking a stroll so you're carrying your cylinder your oxygen cylinder across uh, along with it is it you could choose to some people are doing it i wasn't carrying it and the tradition at the rangu monastery is no longer followed right no I mean, no the rangu monastery is complete the old one is completely uh, and the tradition of uh, no no sky burial is no sky longer burial. there nothing uh, is there. it has uh, been banned by the chinese uh, okay. so it's no longer there in fact in tibet there were three or four uh, such monasteries who used to do this mm-hmm. but all of it i think has been banned as of now okay uh, and the rangu monastery is also a deserted monastery there is nobody there okay uh, there i found one house though of a person who was living there with his uh, wife i think there were two of them two or three of them who were living out there and uh, they're fairly cheerful kind of people i saw a couple of kids running around and all that the next day we started back and uh, this was uh, through a valley called the yalong valley mm-hmm. where you stand on there's a huge there's a yalong river out there and that's got a river bed and you stand on a viewing platform it is beautiful absolutely beautiful out there and uh, after that, it was not a very uh, 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 hugely eventful trip because we retraced our entire routes and came back all the way to Lhasa. Okay, but do you? Uh, I think you just come back straight off, or do you have to again break journeys in those no. respective places because you've already got acclimatized. You've already got, and you're coming down. Yeah, so you're anyway gaining oxygen as well. That's right. That's right. So you came all the way back. Came all the so way. So how back much time does it take you from uh, the Everest base camp back to Lhasa? Uh, by evening, I was in Lhasa. Okay. I started off probably after the sunrise and all of that. They had uh, pancakes and uh, green tea, mm-hmm. or some such tea they had, and pancakes. Mm-hmm. And um, I couldn't uh, eat too much. Mm-hmm. You just lose your appetite in that altitude. Mm-hmm. Eat too much, and then came down, wolfed down a massive lunch uh, somewhere on the way, mm-hmm. and then got back to Lhasa. That's about it. Mm-hmm. and uh, stayed overnight in lhasa and i i spent a couple of more days in lhasa mm-hmm. just exploring the place all by myself walking around visiting the small uh, hole in the wall bars and uh, food joints and mm-hmm. barcourt street which i fell in love with couldn't visit uh, podala once again i didn't get the uh, permission to do that mm-hmm. but that's about it and then from lhasa take a flight back into kathmandu and uh, from there back to india okay so is Tibet a place truly for backpacking? In which case, I mean, you you did mention that you had lots of people from different nationalities visiting Tibet. But uh, would you recommend this to be a place for backpacking? Uh, listen, Tibet is the back of beyond, and if you are backpacking, easily find things to do and places to stay and all of that. But it's not allowed legally. Okay. Legally, the Chinese government puts a lot of curbs on travel into Tibet. So you need other than the Chinese visa, you need a Tibet travel permit and some various other permits to visit Tibet. And go by yourself. You have to perforce have a guide, hmm. and that guide is appointed by the government. Uh, he's he's got a uh, uh, an ID number and so on and so forth. If any person in his group goes missing, his or her group goes missing, 
he will be held accountable and is he a tibetan or is he a chinese guy uh the guide was with he was a chinese person so that's what it was it's more or less it's not like you're exploring the place on your own it's probably through a well charted route that is given out and you only pass through that route So, so do you actually take uh, can you take some notes uh, from here when you travel there can you carry some books about tibet or that is forbidden you can do all of that except that it cannot be the lonely planet for instance so it's just the lonely planet which is no, not allowed or no, the big reason why no lonely planet is because lonely planet has a book on has a book for every country okay. and they published a book called tibet okay china doesn't recognize tibet as a different country Mm. So if okay. you have a guidebook that says China and in that there's a Tibet section, there's no problem. But if you have a book that says the country of Tibet, then you have a problem. Or if you have a picture, I told you of the Dalai Lama, there's a problem and all that. It's a very, um, it's called the Tibet Autonomous Region. Mm. However, it's very very controlled. Okay. And did you happen to see any soldiers or anything down there? I mean, oh, lots, man. I mean, you know, I told you the Gansai. They they've just left it as a burnt out shell in in uh, to as a constant reminder to people of, about who's the boss and about the um, the the way Tibet was taken over, etc. Uh, similarly, on on one of the towns, I forget where. Maybe it was uh, Shigatse or maybe it was Yangtze. Yangtze. Uh, I don't remember. In one of the towns. At, at night 1:30, I was I suddenly woke up to the sound of some uh, parade and stuff like that. So I thought it was some war, or I didn't know what it was. You know, that funny state of the middle earthquake. I don't know. So I went and looked out, and there were these soldiers marching out there. There was a flag march. So I went downstairs and asked these guys, "What's happened? Is there some issue?" They said, "No, no, no. They once in a while at 1:32 in the night they do this, just to underline the fact that you know uh, it's controlled. It's controlled." Uh, one thing that I've always heard about is. Uh, You know those ferocious dogs called as the mastiffs, right? Yes. Uh, oh yes. Down down in Tibet, did you happen to see any? I mean, are they something like uh, you know they're wandering about, or is it you know only with a very few uh, people? Yeah. See, the it's a very sad story of the Tibetan mastiffs. You know, these dogs are really big. They're ferocious, and they look like lions with a large mane and all of that. Um, and they're almost always angry. The reason that they're angry is because they're not fed properly. What had happened is sometime back uh, these these uh, things became quite a rage, and the wealthier families started picking up uh, mastiffs as pups in uh, mainland China, in Tibet, everywhere. The wealthy families picked them up, and then they realized it was difficult to manage them inside a house because they're huge creatures, right? The economy was also going in for a downturn. So what they did is the worst thing that a human being can do, which is they just came back and abandoned them. Mm-hmm. Now these things had to scavenge for food. And they are naturally bigger than naturally ferocious, so they started taking food from everywhere. And this is when a lot of them were put down, etc. There's one uh, bunch of guys who got a lot of these stray mastiffs and put them in a in a place, and they're fed regularly, etc. I gave some money to somebody to do to feed uh, uh, some of those dogs, etc. Um, but but that's what happens. Now some of these dogs, the owners uh, sit on the side of the road, etc. And uh, You know, charge you money to click a picture with them and stuff like that. But I, I did it. I, I normally don't do this this kind of a thing. I don't like to encourage this. But I did it just because I knew there was no other way that man was going to be able to feed that dog. They're very beautiful, uh, majestic creatures. They unfortunately have been, uh, you know, by because of man's uh, need for showing off, their lives have been wrecked in this fashion. So reckless breeding and uh, then abandonment. Is there some kind of a mythological connect between 
the Mount Everest that we see here, that you talked about and that you've seen, and of course, Kailash. Yes, there's a lot of mythological connect. Okay, so uh, some immediate ones that come to mind. So Kailash, for instance, is supposed to be the uh, place where uh, Lord Shiva in Hindu mythology lives. Mm -hmm. In Jain mm -hmm. uh, mythology, the first Tirthankara, which is Adinatha, as they call, also is supposed to live in uh, on Mount Kailash. It's the only mountain that has not been climbed by humans ever. And you're not allowed to do it because uh, uh, long, long back, I think one Tibetan monk had gone out there. He came back and said, nobody should ever go there. Mm. Um, and that's it. So nobody has gone out there. You're not supposed, it's a holy mountain. You're not supposed to climb Kailash. But, um, not, not, even trekkers don't trek no, there? No, nobody's allowed to go. Mount Everest is similar in terms of uh, religious uh, reverence that people accord. But there are lots of trekkers who go up there and all of that. Um, some of the things that I saw, the Himalayas has always been the source of a lot of mythology and, and uh, fodder for a lot of myths and all of that. Some of the things that I figured, you remember in the um, uh, Mahabharata, there are the Pandavas who go into one particular right. lake and right. uh, um, Dharma, uh, Dharma Raja comes in and uh, Yaksha comes in and says, you know, give me the uh, answers to my questions, right. otherwise you can't drink right. water from here. Right. And four of them go and don't answer and drink water, they fall dead and you wish to answer the yeah. question. Well, that lake is supposed to be here on the way. It's supposed to be a holy lake and uh, nobody's supposed to defile it. I remember when I was standing there, one person, I think he was from Japan, I don't know where he was from. But anyway, he, he went and decided to take a leak. Mm. And the locals standing out there started throwing stones at him. Wow. To uh, stop him from doing that. But uh, that's one of them. The Pandavas route is supposed to have been through Tibet. Mm. So, so, so you happen to see the lake? Yeah, I saw the lake. And um, uh, oh, the other thing is, uh, there is a story that uh, the first Shankara, the Adi Shankara, is supposed to have uh, taken Kalpanik Samadhi from Kedarnath. So from Kedarnath, he climbed the peak and then nobody ever saw him again, is the legend. But uh, he's supposed to have moved, crossed over, gone into Tibet from Kedarnath and been, uh, he's supposed to have been one of the persons who started off Zen Buddhism in some fashion. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at their mythology, you look at their religious uh, uh, rituals and all of that, you find a lot of, and the philosophies. There's a lot of similarity in the philosophies. So you, and even when you look at rituals, there's a lot of, it's what's called Tantric Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be a lot of this thing, this yoga, you know, the chakras that we have and the Kundalini, etc. It seems to be very, very influenced by that. I mean, what's a good time to go? I, I know you mentioned that spring is a good time to go. Is there any other time period that you would suggest? I mean, obviously the Septembers, Octobers are not September good. is good. I think good. Till, yeah, September till mid-September is good. But now with climate changing all over the place, um, you'll just have to check which is spring. But typically from uh, April onwards or maybe mid-March onwards is good time to okay. Up to say August, mid-September. Okay, so thanks Anand uh, for spending some time today and discussing specifically on uh, Mount Everest. Thanks, Gishan. Thanks for having me. I, you know, I always love to talk about travel. Thanks for tuning in. Do come back for more such experiences to the Beyond Experiences Travel Podcast. Take care, stay safe, have fun, and whatever else you do, don't trip on the issue.